the Doxed, the podcast. Well, today's episode I'm kind of excited about uh, because with all the talk of armchair diagnosis <laughs> and uh, diagnosing people with personality disorders, but no one ever really talking about it mm-hmm. or why they feel that way. It, it seems like armchair diagnosis is just kind of a way of insulting people now. But I actually have a special interest in all kinds of neurological disorders and personality disorders and things. So I'm pretty excited about this one. Yeah, I'm excited about it too. I don't have nearly as much of that kind of information. And I bet you're going to teach me a few things in this hour. But I have done some reading on psychoanalysis and like Freud and stuff. So that's kind of where I come from the topic. And then also this this interesting connection between narcissism and autism uh, or interesting similarities in presentations, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is a, is a new fascination for me, I think. I really haven't done much study in psychoanalysis, so you could probably teach me a lot on that. <laughs> it's the strength gap. <laughs> exactly. Complimentary. Well, this episode's called Narcnado. I remember hearing <laughs> the term from you. <laughs> Narcnado. Where did you get that from? That's a good question. I don't remember if I came up with it. I honestly don't remember if I came up with it, but I remember we were using it sometime in February and onward to describe the situation because maybe even in late January, because it was this idea that it's not just one narcissistic personality, but kind of an entire tornado of, of all these followers as well <laughs> in a massive storm of something. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was pretty brilliant and pretty fitting for this episode. So how I want to start is just talking about personality disorders in general and then kind of working my way down to NPD, which is going to be the meat and potatoes of the episode. So starting with personality disorders in general, uh, personality disorders, they're clustered to group them together by their shared traits and characteristics in diagnostic criteria. So there's three main clusters and then a fourth catch-all one. So cluster A personality disorders are paranoid, schizoid, and schizotypal personality disorder, and they're characterized by eccentricities, oddness, eccentric thinking and behavior, just like kind of overall weirdness, I guess. And then cluster B, which seems to be the hot topic on social media, that includes your borderline personality disorder, narcissistic, histrionic, and antisocial personality disorders, which are characterized by really dramatic and emotional behavior, erratic thinking, erratic, uh, scattered thinking, and just erratic behaviors. Uh, They have a lot of trouble regulating their emotions. They have issues with impulsivity. They can have a really distorted sense of self and distorted sense of others. And how they tend to behave and move through relationships can really negatively impact other people and impact their daily functioning. Cluster C personality disorders include avoidant, dependent, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorders, which are characterized by fear and anxiousness, uh, a worry about things that haven't quite happened yet, obsessive thinking, and obsessive behaviors. And then the fourth would be PDNOS, which is personality disorder not otherwise specified, so different characteristics and traits that can't really fit into cluster A, B, or C or it could be a mixture of all three or two of the three. Do you think you've encountered anyone that's fit into any of the clusters? 
I mean, yeah, I'm sure that I've met people that have fallen into any of those categories or all of them. And uh, some people who fall into multiple categories. I'm not exactly clear about maybe you could clarify paranoid and schizoid disorders a little bit better, because I think I understand the borderline, the histrionic, uh, Mm -hmm. the scattered thinking, or as I've said, disorganized brain, disorganized thinking. distorted sense of self and others but yeah i don't think i really understand i mean i know what paranoia looks like uh do you know if that's tied to mania or what are what are maybe some signs or maybe we could get into signs and symptoms of these things later but i'm but i guess i'm mostly interested in like the paranoid schizoid stuff because that's what i know the least about i think from what i understand how though the cluster a's are grouped together I believe it has to do with like hearing voices and things like that, having visions of things that aren't quite there, hallucinations, maybe people would call them premonitions. I, I think there's a fine line between like clear sensitivities and like an actual like neurological issue. I don't know. As someone that's kind of, I lean towards the spiritual and metaphysical, I think there, there's kind of a line that people skirt when hearing things, having six senses about things, and then experiencing like a mental health crisis. That makes sense. And so is psychosis included in cluster A disorders? Psychosis is like a, it's not a personality thing. It's like an event. So any kind of personality can experience psychosis because it's like a trauma thing. Or it could be like a drug thing. Like it's not necessarily like a personality okay also neither of us are psychologists or doctors of any kind yeah just researching and interpreting research data that i found on the internet google is free do your own research (laughs) i've taken graduate courses in psychoanalysis and uh the freudian tradition so that's where i get most of my stuff from but yeah psychoanalysis is very different from being a psychologist i think that when i say that on tiktok sometimes when i say i'm into psychoanalysis people think I mean that I'm into psychology and they're, mm-hmm. they're slightly different. Psychoanalysis is a particular, at least what I learned was a particular tradition. It, and it doesn't mean that I can be any kind of practicing therapist or have any sort of professional advice in terms of that. Right. You can't diagnose people officially. Be empowered to do your own research, people. Yeah. And there are different philosophies about this too. Especially coming from a religious background. Ooh. Like, (laughs) I feel like in the church that I grew up in, so many of these things were just characterized under possession of different types of demons. (laughs) It's like, "Mm -mm, go to a doctor. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Okay. So the personality disorders are grouped together in clusters A, B, and C. And grouping them together that way helps clinicians kind of understand and diagnose their patients better and develop hopefully really effective treatment plans based on what the symptoms are. So we're going to focus on cluster B, specifically narcissistic personality disorder, because that term gets thrown around every day. I think if you're on TikTok, you hear, if you're on narc talk at all, you just hear about it constantly. It's one of the most stigmatized personality disorders to have. I believe from what I've read that narcissism is kind of a spectrum we all have the tendencies and traits to some degree 
but narcissistic personality disorder is different than just having narcissistic traits. It's a whole other thing. Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, they're two different things and that's important to distinguish. I also think, by the way, that narcissism has to do with the way that we see ourselves in the West. So I don't, so I don't think everybody necessarily is born with narcissistic traits. I think a lot of that comes in from the society that we live in. Going back to the origin of the word narcissist, uh, the word narcissist is derived from a character from Greek mythology named Narcissus. And the deal with him was that he was a hunter known for his beauty and gorgeousness. He was very aesthetically pleasing. And one day when he was on a hunt, he came across a pool of water and saw his reflection in the water. And he fell so in love with himself. He was so enamored with his own reflection that he couldn't stop looking at it. And eventually he died beside the pool of water, consumed by his own image. True. And he turned into a flower. A very pretty flower. Beautiful. <laughs> but what a way to go, just staring at yourself. <laughs> so in, a term... in a reflective pool of water, which I think is extremely interesting. The water aspect and the reflective aspect, the idea that it's all about projection and reflection mm. becomes really important, I think, in this whole conversation. Having to do with narcissism in the West, I think that water represents the other in our psychology and in our Western psychology. And so we think of like foreign places as across the water and water is like this very ephemeral thing. So water stands for a lot, but in some ways it stands for like seafaring travel. And so it becomes, uh, the West looks at the Orient with, a, with a, with quote, scare quotes, Orient as a reflection of itself. The Orient isn't like a real thing. It's just a mirror image of us. And so we sort of play out all of our fantasies and ideas about who we are and that's the entire conception of the West. It's like invented because it's a ref because it's us thinking about ourselves in terms of that reflection and the reflection is in water. And so that to me is all connected with all the symbols. Hmm. When you say that, I think of tarot, the element of water. Water and the imagery of water throughout the tarot has to do with your emotions and your inner world. And going within, seeing within, water depicted at night has to do with the unknown, the unknowns within, unknown emotions, trauma that you haven't tapped into, shadow work and stuff like that. Water depicted in the daylight uh, is about self-discovery. It's all about going within. So thinking about narcissists in terms of looking at his own reflection in the water, I know I want to I wanna draw a parallel there. <laughs> looking at himself in the water and being so in love with himself like it's kind of a tragic story but it's all there's like a a bittersweetness to it that people with this personality disorder with these traits have such a level of self-love that we we kind of all need to tap into self-love but it's like the extreme narcissist I, was the extreme of that I want to question or like push back on that characterization of it though, because is it love? Because the narcissist, the narcissist or, or narcissist himself is looking in the pool of water and the reflection is really himself turned into an object. So it's not really a love for himself. It's a, it's a love for himself turned object. Cause it's and, the extreme. 
So it's not really love anymore. It's the far end of it. So it's it's skewed. It's kind of fucked up yeah, at that I just, level. I guess I just don't like the word love for that because I think it's more like a fetishization. It's more like taking a part of your, like your visual image of yourself and kind of separating that off. And I think in my experience of narcissists, they, I wouldn't say they love themselves. I don't know if you agree. I would say they hate themselves. I would say that they have deep insecurities and they feel that they want to be the most important in the room or in the world, but, but they have like a compulsion to kind of externally make everybody else or, or just, I don't know, just to kind of control the world around them to make it so. And that comes from an insecurity and like a self-hatred. Am I wrong? You're not wrong. I think we're both saying the same, the same thing, with just with different language. They're at the far end of the spectrum of self, of self-involvement, of self-love, self-whatever. They're at the extreme where it's unhealthy. It's not necessarily love of self like it should be because I think with self-love at a normal level you do have empathy for other people you see things in other people you see a bit of yourself in others you see things in others that you want for yourself and I think that contrast and that love for other people helps you kind of learn and grow you see things that you want you see things that you don't want and you evolve and hopefully develop yourself as you mature and get older but with narcissists that there's a there's something wrong there <laughs> like it's it's the extreme of self-involvement where it's not really love anymore yeah well I would say something like maybe it is just saying the same thing in different language but I would say like self-love in a truly loving sense is like you are loving all you're loving everyone because we're all one thing and self-love just for yourself exclusively that's therefore not really self-love like in the sense that we're all we're all one thing together okay so the term narcissism was first introduced by an austrian psychiatrist named paul naka in 1899 that's cool because yeah freud started using it in i believe 1910 was his first use of it so um i did not know that fun fact he used it to describe a pathological form of self-love and self-obsession <laughs> uh again the word so the term self-love pops up the extreme extreme end of it i guess because even paul naka said that well the term narcissistic personality disorder was first introduced into the dsm-3 in 1980 like much 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 later i wonder why it took so long to make it like a official diagnosis well, I think that at first Freud was not using it in such a negative way. And it's interesting because some of Freud's, so the first time Freud ever actually used the term narcissism was uh, he was describing homosexual people and he wasn't saying it in, I think, a negative way necessarily. There's other writings of his, but um, in the 1950s, it became very popular to kind of conflate in a way that then was used to uh, attack homosexual people with, uh, you know, conversion camps and stuff. That was kind of based in this idea that there was a mental illness going on there. And, and it makes sense because uh, he was saying like, they, he was saying like homosexuals identify themselves with a woman and take themselves as their sexual object. 
So you can see where the connection comes from, but then it quickly becomes very insidious uh, and spun out. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I think also um, there was a lot of, there was an, there was a big increase in representations of narcissists as an artistic uh, subject, like the subject of paintings and things across a bunch of different media, especially around France in like the 1850s through to the mid 19, early 1920s. So I don't know. I think that the way that it entered cultural thinking, it had so much to do with our conceptions of ourselves too, because we were just starting to explore the nature of the mind around that time in the early 20th century. And it was this like fascinating, exciting journey into the subconscious basically at the time. And I think we were the narcissists. We were like the West was the narcissist. And so I can see how it took time for us to be like, well, wait, that's, there's something that's bad about, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know about, uh, about that. Trust me. I'm going to get into the breakdown of all the different types of narcissism, like including like the West as we were the narcissist. That's very good that you said that. Cause I'm going to break yeah. that down later. <laughs> good. Perfect. Okay, so looking back, back at the origins of narcissism, it's kind of based on the notion that someone is really self-consumed, uh, consumed with the thought of themselves, consumed with how they look, just self-absorbed. But it's really more complex than that, and there are all kinds of different factors at play when it comes to someone who has these traits and behaviors and this type of personality. It can be genetic. Genetics can play some kind of role in the development of the personality disorder, but environmental factors are also equally as important. Research suggests that children who are raised in environments where they're excessively praised and overindulged can be at a higher risk of developing NPD. And that's because they're never really taught to regulate their emotions or if they're not taught to regulate their emotions or to consider the feelings of others, like they're going to be at high risk for that. And also they come to believe that they're entitled to special treatment and that the world revolves around them if they're not taught those things. And in addition to that, childhood trauma, like abuse or extreme neglect, mm -hmm. can also play a role in the development of NPD. And it's because people that have experienced that kind of trauma can use narcissism as a way to cope with their emotions and protect themselves from further harm. They can develop a sense of superiority and entitlement as a way to mask their feelings of insecurity and vulnerability. It's said that children who experience the trauma of like really extreme emotional neglect really early in life, like infancy, like toddler age, they can develop this kind of maladaptive attention seeking um, and a sense of grandiosity as they get older, which can both be part of that personality disorder. I love that you brought up the idea of entitlement with it, it makes me think of another connection in what I've studied with, uh, what's the book? The book is called Monet, Narcissist and Self-Reflection, The Modernist Myth of Self by Stephen Levine. And there's something that's brought up in there, which is a modernist myth that through the mysterious force of artistic creativity, the male artist becomes identified with the female creation. And so it's this idea that male artists were basically appropriating femininity because they did see it as this kind of liberating force. 
But then I think it was like very self-sabotaging that they did that. And I think that that's, um, that's another reason why I think a lot of, a lot of art was focused around narcissists at the time, because there was a very narcissist, uh, narcissistic or narcissist-like approach in how a lot of modern artists, painters, musicians, all different kinds of media were the ones that we that really made history anyway were were men who were appropriating or trying to appropriate femininity in order to in order to seek some kind of liberation mm. and i think that like that's that encapsulates entitlement to me personally hmm. appropriating femininity as a form of liberation hmm. yeah but it's like sabotaged it's like you didn't actually figure it out because instead of just letting women and femmes be free and do their thing, actually, you thought you you should just get to use that. And also that women should be an object reflection of you. Narcissus in the myth, his mother is a water nymph. So he sees in a way, he sees himself in the reflection of the water, he sees his mother. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting kind of love hate pull between masculine and feminine relationship in our in our society like western society that i think yeah is closely tied into narcissism let's actually define narcissistic personality disorder according to the diagnostic criteria uh, and this is a quote from the dsm-5 a narcissistic personality disorder is a cluster b personality disorder defined as comprising a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, a constant need for admiration, and a lack of empathy. So NPD occurs in a range of different situations as signified by the existence of any five of the next nine standards I'm going to list. Okay, so here's the, here's the meat and potatoes of NPD. And all the different forms of NPD, these are the ones, these nine things tend to be in all of them. So a grandiose logic of self-importance, a fixation with fantasies of infinite success, control, brilliance, beauty, or idyllic love, a credence that he or she is extraordinary and exceptional and can only be understood by or should connect with other extraordinary or important people or institutions, a desire for unwarranted admiration, a sense of entitlement, interpersonally oppressive behavior, no form of empathy, resentment of others or a conviction that others are resentful of him or her, and a display of egotistical and conceited behaviors or attitudes. So, yeah, I mean, all of that can be reflected to some degree in all of us, but when does it become, when does it cross the line into being a disorder? When you have at least five of the nine. That's a lot. I mean, it's one thing to have like one or two. But if you have more than half of these and you're you're moving around the world with, with all that, and that's a lot. That's when it becomes a disorder. But it's not just like in a moment either. It's like it's like you have to be living your life that way. Yeah, you have to be living your life that way. You have to feel this way about everything pretty much all the time. <laughs> what a way to live. Yikes. Yeah. And like I said earlier, NPD is like the most stigmatized out of all the cluster B personalities, in my opinion. And I think it's because their behavior results in really negative outcomes for the people around them. 
and they tend not to experience empathy at all or in a way that makes sense to anyone else. Uh, They're rarely self-aware because it's really hard for them to take accountability for the harm that they cause or to see reasons good enough to pursue deep self-work and implement positive changes to prevent causing more harm to others. They really struggle to form and maintain long, meaningful relationships. That's why people say it's a red flag when someone has no friends or only short-term friends. I think that's a red flag of someone having NPD because even though at a certain age, I, I think millennials, you'll hear a lot of us say, man, it's really hard to make friends when you're not in high school anymore. Mm. But there, there are people that just fake friends, but they cannot keep them. And mm. that's a red flag. It's one thing if you're kind of isolated and you just don't meet people. Mm-hmm. It's also another thing if you're maybe autistic and you do meet people and you do develop friendships, but for one reason or another, maybe it's overstimulating to be in constant contact But it's one thing to make a friend, you make fast friends with someone and it falls apart and they end up hurt. That other person always ends up hurt. That's a huge red flag. Well, okay. So this gets into the, the lack of empathy thing. There's this, there's this like autism conflation. And I don't think autistic people under the surface are anything like narcissistic people, although we've learned it can be comorbid. It's not commonly comorbid and there are very different motivations there, I think. I, but I think that it can also definitely be not uncommon for autistic people to enter into friendships and then find that they have suddenly fallen apart for reasons unbeknownst to them because, because we don't always understand how we're coming off to people, I think. And also mm-hmm. we've talked before about how different words can kind of mean different things depending on the direction of the power dynamic you're on. So I think hurt is one of those words. Like, are you hurting the other person because you're, you're actually hurting someone in in the sense of there's a power imbalance. You've taken away someone's power. You've controlled someone in an unwarranted way. You've crossed their boundaries or are you hurting them in the sense that they are in our society and expect us and expect that you would be nice and expect that you would not say the thing that was that everybody in polite society just knows not to say, but you said it anyway, and you you know you shocked them, or you made them really think, or you they didn't want to confront that thing about themselves or about whatever the situation. You know, those are two completely different experiences of being hurt. Part of the reason that there that it's not difficult to conflate maybe autistic and narcissistic behavior from the outside is because people aren't having this awareness of power dynamics and, and even like healthy boundaries. I think that if we can do more unpacking and more kind of shadow work collectively, I think it will be easier to distinguish between autistic and narcissistic people. But I can see how early on in you know, the history of diagnosis, they were pretty easily conflated and autistic people are seen as having a lack of empathy when really all of my experiences of autistic people are that we have extreme empathy. It's just, um, we mm-hmm. don't always, we don't always understand we come off. I think, what do you think about that? I agree with you as an autistic person and having known a handful of narcissists in my life, I, I can see how people get us confused, but here are the biggest differences for me. Someone with NPD that is not self-aware and not working on themselves they tend to leave a trail of pain. 
autistic people yeah i mean we hurt people too everybody is capable of hurting people emotionally for all kinds of different reasons and hurt is a word that's kind of like relative you know but there's this very distinct trail of pain that people with npd unaware people with npd will leave behind them also autistic people from my experience don't really come off as like life of the party super charismatic super magnetic walks into a room and either sucks the life out of a room or walks into the room and everybody all eyes are on you i I don't feel like autistic people and this is a i'm painting with a really broad stroke right now but i feel like with autistic people maybe i should just speak for myself i don't move through the world wanting or needing attention i don't have a deep ache for people to pay attention to me and narcissistic personality disorder those people absolutely need attention they need it it's their lifeblood that's interesting i was trying to i remember some kind of study where and i and i couldn't look it up fast enough but uh it was something about it's very easy for people to clock an autistic person pretty much immediately but they don't know or for allistic people which is to say non-autistic people to clock an autistic person pretty much immediately but they don't always know that you're autistic. They just kind of read it as that person's weird. There's something rude. weird about them. There's something off about them. Mm-hmm. They think that and, we're weird or they think that we're rude. Yeah, rude is a common one. But um, yeah, I didn't mean to say anything like that autistic people can't. Autistic people can definitely hurt people too. That's definitely true. Um, I also wonder, I also think it's about intent though, too, because I have never intended to hurt someone. Mm-hmm. I have hurt people. Absolutely. I've hurt people, but I have never intended to, I've never been malicious in my relationships and especially not as a regular thing. And I think from what I've read, and maybe, you know, more that a narcissist has some enjoyment or yeah, lack of empathy, enjoyment in, in the process of hurting other people. It kind of depends on where they're at in the cycle. There's like a whole a whole cycle that I'm going to break down. Like this oh, is yeah. going to get so deep. That. But I just want to say before we move forward, like it's a little disclaimer mm-hmm. that people with NPD, like they have really negative behaviors. Everyone has negative behaviors. We're all capable of that. But they still deserve love and empathy and understanding and support. And with treatment, if they make that choice to to take those steps towards managing their symptoms and improving their relationship with themselves, improving their relationships with others in their lives, improving their functioning. It it is possible to improve, but they have to take those steps on their own and recognize that it's worth it to make those changes. That's the thing about people with NPD. They don't always, I mean, they almost never realize that they are the problem or that they have a problem. It's hard to look inward in that way it which is weird because they absolutely put themselves on a pedestal all the time but when it comes to anything negative they're not really looking within they're blaming everyone around them but if they're able to be self-aware and work on themselves of course they can improve they probably have npd because of really serious trauma at a really young age so compassion and empathy is like definitely a thing that should be extended to them, but also very hard boundaries. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, it, it sucks. Like having a personality disorder, like you didn't ask for it, you didn't choose it. It's just 
how your brain chose to protect you from being hurt further. But man, they really can hurt other people in really serious ways. But you still, I don't know, I can feel bad for them, but also not be hurt by them because. Yeah, well, you can still protect yourself. I'm trying to get my heart broken. But you can see how somebody could go through life not even understanding what was going on or whose fault something Mm -hmm. was because of the way their brain works. So you do have to have empathy for that. Yeah. In my personal experience of people like this, when I say I've encountered a handful, it's not just an encounter. Like my dad's not diagnosed, but I believe he has some form of NPD. I was in a five-year relationship with someone that was diagnosed NPD, and I didn't know that he was diagnosed until his mom told me toward the end when my life had started to fall apart. So I have very intimate experience with people like this. And the thing is with people like that is that they tend to be perfectly wonderful people as you get to know them. They're not going around narking 24-7. They're not terrible all of the time. They don't display these awful traits and behaviors all the time they're human like everyone else they have their quirks like everyone else and they have really wonderful qualities unique to them like the rest of us do the traits come out when they feel slighted or they feel like they have to defend themselves but with these people they tend to be like really deeply insecure in their identity and insecure in their friendships and relationships so they can perceive pretty much anything as a slight and a reason to defend themselves. And that's just not sustainable for any kind of connection with other people. So like even among the best of friends with the best of intentions, it's not really likely that people are going to always appease you and always tiptoe around your triggers and insecurities. That's not something that people do all of the time. So the thing with people's NPD is that there's just no room for error. There's no grace for a misunderstanding, a misstep, nothing. The story in their head can be something that's just not reality for you at all, but you'll be punished for it no matter what. And the connection with them will never recover to a point where you feel emotionally safe with them ever again. So once they go to that place of seeing you as someone who doesn't absolutely adore them and put them on a pedestal, you fall out of favor with them and the, the connection is just never the same. Well, if I'm understanding, it's almost, it's like they put you on a pedestal, right? And they are basically assigning you a role or like a part to play, only they don't necessarily tell you what the part is. So it's like a totally unfair game because they could be expecting you're going to act a certain way because that's the role they cooked up for you in their head, but they don't communicate that. And so suddenly you failed at this totally arbitrary standard. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get punished. They put you on a pedestal, never a pedestal above them. But the way that they put you on a pedestal is like, this person makes me look a certain way, makes me feel a certain way. Other people will look at me with them and think these things about me. <laughs> that's the pedestal that you're on. And once you become human, it's like, ugh, you're not ideal anymore. So yeah, it is impossible. Yeah. And then it seems like pretty black and white thinking when it comes to people. And I think that comes from objectivizing, objectifying people, other people, and thinking of them as objects. And then you think, mm-hmm. well, if you're not, you're discarded now. You're just, uh, you're nothing if you're not exactly what I wanted. When, of course, we've talked about false dichotomies. There's a whole spectrum of what people can be. Mm-hmm. Well, this is kind of the fun part 
there's all these different subtypes of narcissism and I didn't even list all of them but the ones that really perked my ears up I listed okay oh so one there's overt narcissism the overt narcissism is a subtype of NPD where the person demonstrates grandiosity a need for admiration and a lack of empathy for others and they typically exhibit their behavior in a really obvious and direct way. They seek attention and praise and admiration. They're super self-centered, super entitled, and they expect others to comply with their demands. People that are overt narcissists tend to be super charismatic, super magnetic, life of the party, like kind of Leo energy, you know? Like the, the world kind of revolves around them. They want the world to revolve around them. So they know how to grab people's attention in a positive way. Mm. If they act like assholes, no one's going to like them. They want everyone to like them. So they're going to be very extroverted. But also when they flip that switch, those behaviors are also very in your face too. All right. Yeah, not, not fun. <laughs> not fun. The next one, I think a lot of people have experience with these ones covert narcissism they're also known as vulnerable or sensitive narcissists and it's a subtype of npd that's characterized by a person's apparent humility and shyness and vulnerability and they present themselves as victims with really low self-esteem they can be really self-deprecating but they still have this exaggerated sense of their own self-importance and a preoccupation with power and control and recognition they're really emotionally manipulative and very passive aggressive. They guilt trip, they sulk, and they're, they can be kind of melancholy. They always default to kind of playing the victim and they can use pity to manipulate people into doing what they want. They're really difficult to detect because they can appear as kind of tender and soft and introverted and sensitive but they still have the same need as any other narcissist. They just go about it in a covert way. Okay. So is it, do you know about if it's common for two narcissists to be in a relationship? And then it seems like it makes sense that one might be cast as the enabler in that dynamic, but would be that kind of covert narcissist, which is of course not what's necessarily happening in all cases where there's somebody that's, you know, a narcissistic abuser or whatever, an enabler. But would that be, do you think that's a common kind of dynamic between two narcissists? Or do you think that happens? I'm sure that happens. I don't know how common that is. I don't know. They don't know. <laughs> it just sounds like a nightmare for two narcissists to get together. But I feel like there are more, I feel like there are more covert narcissists than we even realize. So it makes sense that two would end up in a relationship together. And the covert one, I guess they could be an enabler of another narcissist if they reside in the victim role the whole time and they want to be there because it gives them a very specific type of attention. And if someone's being awful to them, then they can leverage that for supply from other people outside of the relationship. So yeah, maybe. All right. Uh, my other question was, and maybe you're going to talk about this with other types or subtypes of narcissism. This is something I'm not, I'm not educated on. You're, you're teaching me is, uh, is there, what can you describe the differences between a narcissist and a sociopath? 
Are you going to get there? Ooh, I am not going to get there. But they share they share the common trait of no empathy. I don't know if sociopaths have the need for attention, though. I don't think they really care about that as much as narcissists do. Narcissists need people. They don't necessarily care about people in the way that someone with empathy would. They rely on supply, narcissistic supply, attention, validation. All of their sense of self is wrapped up in external sources. I don't know that sociopaths care about that in the same way where they need people. They're self-focused and they have their own goals that they want to achieve at any cost. Like no one really matters to a sociopath, but to a narcissist, people matter because they need people. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I was asking my therapist about this because I encountered someone recently who was behaving in a terrifying way and uh, seemed to have no empathy. And I was describing them and, and saying they might be a narcissist. My therapist said, that person sounds like they might be a sociopath. And the main thing that she described about a sociopath was that they basically have like a void in them. Like they just really, there's an impulsive behavior tendency Mm -hmm. Um, but that, and then the lack of empathy and that all kind of comes from just a complete, like a nothingness, which isn't quite the same, I think for narcissism. Although again, I'm, I'm not very well educated on this. I, I have dealt with narcissistic people, but this situation this year, and I guess there was another narcissistic person last year, two years ago who in retrospect, thinking back, I think they were a lot more manipulative than I realized at the time. And I think they might've fit into some of these categories or descriptions too. But beyond those kind of two incidences, I think I've encountered plenty of narcissistic people. I live in America, (laughs) but (laughs) uh, maybe not some of these more intense diagnosable narcissists. Uh, So I, I, I feel a little bit naive about it. But the, anyway, that was basically what my therapist said was there's just kind of a void. Yeah, people that have like sociopathy, that scares me because there's just no regard for human life at all. There's just no empathy to a level that I can't even wrap my brain around. I feel like narcissists at least care enough about themselves where they care about how they're perceived I don't think sociopaths really give a shit about how they're perceived at all. Except unless it would help them control people, I guess, or manipulate us. Yeah. So the next one is antagonistic narcissism. So that's a subtype of NPD characterized by a strong desire for power and control over other people. Uh, People with this display a really hostile and aggressive personality. They exploit and manipulate others to achieve their own goals. They have a a pervasive sense of entitlement and superiority over others and can engage in really destructive behaviors like belittling and intimidating. And they can get into physical abuse to maintain their dominance. I think I I knew someone like that in my childhood, actually. Sorry, can you say the, the type again? Antagonistic narcissism. Okay. See, I didn't know that was a type. But that rem- that reminded me totally of someone I used to know in my childhood who was like an ex-military person and was a was a teacher in a school mm-hmm. that I went to and was and had hyper control over a classroom of students, including 
some of his own children who I think he he abused and that's very interesting yeah they they really aim to make people feel insecure and helpless and they can also kind of cross over into psychopathy like with, with an extreme lack of empathy no remorse and just no regard for other people's feelings or rights or autonomy or, or anything these ones can be really violent and i believe my dad fell into this category or maybe one of the next ones i'm going to mention but violence and just the need to overpower people but yeah, crossing over into the scary. My dad definitely had a little bit of that. Yeah, well, it also kind of rings, except for maybe the level of manipulation or whatever, but it kind of sounds otherwise like patriarchy or toxic masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the next subtype, which I've kind of broken down into two subtypes, uh, communal narcissism. So this is a pattern of behavior where a person seeks to establish a positive image through their association with a group or community rather than through their individual accomplishments or qualities. So they can be seen as like a form of like collective self-enhancement, like their alignment with a group, Mm -hmm. like boost them somehow. And that's where they get their sense of self-worth from and their sense of like success or superiority with it's from their alignment with a particular group and communal narcissists can have like a a preoccupation with the group's image and the group status and wanting to promote them and defend them even at the expense of like other groups and i broke it down even further into collective communal narcissism which i used to talk about on my tiktok And the difference between communal narcissism and collective communal narcissism is that collective communal narcissism is usually like a leader of a group. They create a narcissistic culture among the collective. So instead of someone using the group to boost themselves, they just make a whole narcissistic culture out of the group. And that group or cult or collective or following becomes a narcissistic extension of that person they're able to control the group to act on their behalf in a narcissistic way that sounds like okay first of all that sounds like too many churches and Mm -hmm. then second of all that sounds like some companies it sounds like i have this theory i think i'm not the first person to talk about this but this idea that like whatever the trauma or toxicity of the company leader like the person who founded it basically or the people on the board whatever that is trickles down to the rest of the company and same thing with the church and like a pastor say or pastor's family the first company that came to mind you said that was goop (laughs) (laughs) oh no um goop and starbucks oh my god yeah but the the kind of personality flaws of of the leaders trickle down and if they don't so it's like these, it's like a bunch of people who are uh, likely wealthy enough to have been to get in that position. So maybe don't otherwise have to deal with their, don't have to do with their shadow work to get there, but uh, they should do their shadow work because it would make for a much better company or church. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, too many churches are, uh, are, I'm reminded of my own church from when I was a child and, uh, yeah. And so many people who 
who adopted the church as their identity, you know, and so many people mm-hmm. who would cover up not just, you know, in, in general in a church, in a in a in a religious hierarchy would just cover up abuse or whatever. Seems like that describes that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the collective is narcissistic, but they've sort of been brainwashed, I guess, or trauma bonded into becoming a narcissistic extension of whoever the authority or leader is. Yeah, that's that's important. I think you're not necessarily a narcissist yourself, but you can still be an arm of a narcissist if you're just not careful. Mm -hmm. If you don't, if you don't have the discernment or if you don't learn to recognize the signs of, or maybe you don't have a choice sometimes. Again, if you're just in a company, maybe that's literally because that was the job you could get and you have to survive. So it's a matter of survival, but nonetheless, now you're in, you're a punching arm of a narcissistic head yeah or if you're in an intense parasocial relationship with a toxic social media influencer and do bad things on their behalf Hmm. that's kind of a form of collective communal narcissism too yeah and that's another case where i think people that's not such a case of survival but definitely some people in that mix who had no idea they were doing something harmful and were not intending to, and were probably not narcissistic at all. were probably perfectly nice people, but didn't look at the context and didn't have discernment and ended up again, just right up along with everybody else as a very harmful punching arm. Yeah. And not looking at the content context and be intentional of whoever that influencer is or whoever that leader is. They don't want you to know context because then you can make a choice for yourself and they don't want you to do that. Mm -hmm. So the next one, another scary, is malignant narcissism. Mm -hmm. And that one's characterized as a psychological condition that has features of NPD and antisocial behavior, paranoia, and sadism. Like it's a, it's bad. It's NPD it's antisocial, it's paranoia, it's sadism, it's getting a thrill out of absolutely torturing people. It's it's an ugly one. It's the it's considered to be a more severe and more dangerous form of NPD. Um, you have the grandiosity, the inflated sense of self-importance, total lack of empathy for others, a need for power and control, and a willingness to manipulate and exploit people for personal gain. So people with this malignant subtype can be really aggressive physically, emotionally. They can be really manipulative and exploitative. Um, They can be really entitled and just have no regard for the consequences of their actions. They don't really care what happens because of whatever it is that they do, whatever kind of harm they cause. They don't care what happens after that. So it's not really recognized as a formal diagnosis, but it's something that's really widely studied because it's it's a mix of a couple of different things in the cluster B. And I've also heard of people describing cluster B disorders as often a milkshake of like a mixture of the disorders together to where you have uh, one of them might be the prevailing diagnosis or the one that mm-hmm. presents in the most central way. But uh, the other ones are kind of also in the mix. Is that right? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say between antagonistic and malignant, malignant is probably the most scary out of all of the ones I'm going to talk about. And it's still being studied, so I hope they, they keep 
um, finding things so that people can protect themselves because mm-hmm. that's a bad one. And then they get they get lighter after that. Are malignant nice. narcissists able to often? Maybe you don't know. Are they are they able to? rise up in the ranks in jobs are they able to maintain jobs and get into positions of power or i guess and maybe that's a question for narcissists overall is it common to find narcissists in positions of power like as company leaders or is it difficult uh does it make you dysfunctional i think people with npd absolutely can rise in the ranks of any corporation any public office police force any kind of law enforcement like absolutely because they have the charisma and the magnetism to do it a lot of times it's not what you know it's who you can schmooze and narcissists are very good at that they don't have to they don't necessarily have to be qualified for the positions that they go for they're very good at telling people what they want to hear studying people mirroring people and getting close to people without really having to give much of themselves. I think they are one of the quickest to rise in power in in any position. Well then, okay, that makes sense. And it's probably then because they understand hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And I think that might be another important difference between narcissists and autistic people. I think it's also important to note personality disorders are not a neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. They're neurotypical people with a personality disorder, not a neurological condition, except for the only exception would be malignant narcissists, because that's kind of a different thing. Right. So the next one is somatic narcissism. And that's a subtype of NPD where the person really values their physical appearance, their physique and their attractiveness. They're really obsessed with how they look, really obsessed with their body and how they present themselves. And they seek attention and admiration for their physical attributes. And they can they can engage in like really excessive dieting or they can be really obsessed with like exercise or addicted to plastic surgery, anything to maintain how they look. And they can view others as inferior based on how they look and they can exploit and manipulate other people for any kind of validation for their physical appearance and how they look and how they're perceived okay i don't know if i've met anyone quite like that but i've seen some reality shows of people that i think might have that well it's so interesting because i knew someone when i was younger who i used to think was a narcissist because they were obsessed with their physical like i perceived them as being obsessed with their physical appearance and i think actually that person was autistic and I think they were doing that because it was uh, they were mirroring what they saw as socially successful people in their school, in their community. And they were trying to they were just trying to mirror. It was a mirroring game and it came off as narcissistic, but it was really just masking. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. But I mean, and as I've as I've grown up, I've I've learned to look at that person differently, but uh, very differently. But yeah, I don't think I've ever met somebody that that turned out to be a, a true blue narcissist just uh, in that category or subcategory. Mm. I don't think I have either. And, and all of these are rooted in a really deep insecurity. So someone that obsessed with how they look, they have they probably have a lot of trauma around their physical appearance or maybe their physical appearance 
is the only way they get attention because maybe they don't quite have the personality or the charisma to draw people in. So they really lean into how they look to get people to give them attention and validation. Okay, that makes sense. The next one. So my ex with NPD, I believe he had a mix of covert narcissism and this next one that I'm going to talk about which is cerebral narcissism. And that's a type of NPD characterized by a really grandiose sense of intellectual superiority <laughs> oh, no. and, an, and an overvaluation of their own intelligence or knowledge. Uh, oh. That's someone that really prioritizes their intellect and academic or professional achievements over other areas of their lives. And they can seek out admiration and validation from other people for their intellect and their accomplishments and feel really entitled to special treatment or special recognition because of it. Uh, they don't have empathy and they do have a tendency to exploit other people for their own gain, but their focus is on their intellectual pursuits more than anything else, more than how they look, more than their ability to overpower anyone. What they lean on, because it's not really their personality, they don't really have the charisma they don't really have the magnetism either kind of like the the somatic one and i believe that my ex was a mix of the covert and the cerebral because he was also kind of self-deprecating very much played the victim kind of you know unsuspecting introvert quiet not the life of the party but also in his own right brilliant he did have brilliance in, in his own right i i still think i'm smarter than him but he made me feel, he made me feel very stupid all of the time oh. and when it comes to intellect and accomplishments and education i superseded him in every category financially i did better than him and when he started to see me do financially better than him because he was a six-figure earner and then i met him and surpassed him and that's when he kind of leaned into oh you're emasculating me because you make more than me and oh, no. leaned into more, like more passive aggressiveness he wasn't so boastful about mm. his own intellect um but when we first met he he was very prideful about how smart everyone told him he was all the time <laughs> but i don't think it was actually because he was like intellectually superior it, he's just like a nerdy white guy like I think he was that brilliant. He didn't go to yeah. college or anything like that. I mean, I put him through college after we met, but before oh, wow. that, he was just like very boastful about how logical he is and how intellectual he is and how he has these like really great intellectual conversations. But then when I would try not challenge him, but kind of meet him there, it, he couldn't really. I definitely think he was like a hybrid of cerebral and covert for sure. Very interesting. I'm sure that I. I don't know. I've been in university forever, so I'm sure I know people. And I was laughing because I think if you can mistake me for a narcissist, I bet that's the kind. <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't think that, I think that a lot of academia in general is made up of research that is extremely self-aggrandizing and mm -hmm. uh, self-defensive, basically defensive of your own position as a, a professional. It would be a lot to go into a whole thing about that whole side quest Allie did with the, that whole time that Allie went back to some old video of mine and brought up the idea about academic authority that I had been talking about 
And then that quote unquote diagnosed me a narcissist because of, I was claiming authority and I was talking about it in a sociopolitical sense, but I see how you could, you could just think I meant I have authority. It's an important, but, but very fine line there, right? Because Mm -hmm. yeah, how could you really tell that I'm not just being self-aggrandizing by talking about it? Uh, I get how that could be mistaken. I don't think it's appropriate for people to be shouting narcissist at me as a result of me just talking about academics or whatever. But no, I see, that's I not fair at there. all. No, that's not fair at all. Yeah. And as far as authority goes, authority is something that is earned. And when you're going for your PD, your PhD, or you've earned your PhD, or any like higher education, I think. You earn that authority in that subject. That's kind of the whole point of getting a degree and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on your education. It's so that you can have authority in that subject, but it's it's earned. And if that comes off as entitled, well, you earned it. Like, I don't understand why that, uh, that automatically makes you narcissistic because you did the work to earn the authority you have in a particular subject. Well, I think since I'm not a man, it's easy to see anything that I'm proud of myself about as undue entitlement. So there's that. But I I just I guess I'm saying too, I do see how it's hard to see from the outside which of which it would be. Like I guess I can think like I'm not trying to diagnose anyone whatsoever, but just hypothetically, I think of like a Jordan Peterson type when I think of uh, a cerebral narcissist somebody who sort of rests in that identity of being smarter than thou. And again, I can see how I come off that way. I don't think it's narcissistic to acknowledge your own intelligence. It's when you expect to be treated differently and you feel when you feel entitled to be treated differently because of your intellect and your accomplishments, that's what makes it narcissistic. Well, and, and I don't feel above anybody else because of my education i really don't and i think that the that one thing i face a lot is people feeling an insecurity and feeling mm-hmm. like i must feel above them because they're projecting because they feel insecure they feel like they're not measuring up or something but i don't think i'm doing that to people i think people in especially in this whole and this alley situation was unusual that wasn't really my daily experience either but in this situation, people are absolutely coming at me with a lot of insecurity and a mm-hmm. lot of this kind of this kind of sense that I was lording my intelligence over them. I really don't. I, I, I yeah, I can see how it happened, but I think it was projection. I really do. And also, I think that someone who is a cerebral narcissist versus someone that is highly intelligent and has a great education is that someone that's not a narcissist but is also highly intelligent would recognize I am an expert in A, B, and C. I'm not an expert in everything. I'm not right about everything in the world. (laughs) They still have some level of humility around the subjects that they have not studied, right? Like you you can be an expert in one thing or several things if you've earned the authority in those things, or even if you have the lived experience and just can yeah. speak to it in a way, in a really robust way that people can benefit from, I guess. But a narcissist would believe, oh, I checked off these boxes, so I'm an expert in everything. I'm the go-to person everyone should come to with every question because I'm that smart. 
that's not a thing. Well, that makes sense. Are you tired of feeling unsafe online? Do you want to learn how to protect yourself from cyberbullying, doxing, and other forms of online harassment? Then look no further than Doxed the Podcast. Visit the website doxthepodcast.com to sign up for the Doxed free ebook full of helpful tips and resources for online safety. Plus, when you sign up, you'll receive the weekly newsletter with the latest updates on upcoming content. There are many ways to connect with Doxed, including Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Discord. Have a story to share or feedback to give? Use the contact form on the site to reach out or leave a voice message to be featured on the show. And for exclusive content, subscribe to the Doxed Supercast to gain access to the private podcast feed with member-only exclusives. Take control of your online safety and join the Doxed community today. Yeah, there's humility there, I think, in in your non-narcissistic people. Yeah. Next one is one that we've heard a lot. Hmm. <laughs> Spiritual narcissism. Oh no. Yeah. Ow, we love to is talk that, about is that, that a, one. is that a DSM five thing though? No, no, no. The DSM five uh is just NPD. These are all just subtypes of NPD. Oh, so none of these are listed in DSM five. These are just like discussed yeah outside of that okay they're just groupings of different characteristics under the umbrella of npd okay all right cool so spiritual narcissism which is not quite the same as spiritual psychosis (laughs) not at all uh so spiritual narcissism is when someone believes that they're spiritually superior to other people and they use their spiritual beliefs and practices as a means of gaining power and control over others which i think is probably in line with the collective communal narcissist um but this type of narcissism it can be characterized by like a sense of self-importance also a lack of empathy for other people and the belief that their own spiritual practices or beliefs are the only true or only correct ones uh they can use their spirituality to manipulate and exploit other people they can be really unwilling to listen to or consider the other opinion opinions of other people and beliefs of other people that don't share their same exact spiritual views and they can also be more focused on the external trappings of spirituality like outward displays of piety or religious practices rather than their own inner growth or self-reflection i don't think i've seen this at all among anyone that ali diagnosed with spiritual narcissism oh really not on tiktok no yeah i mean i don't even know all these people enough to know you know how can you possibly diagnose people from their tiktok pages but um Mm -hmm. but i was gonna say that that reminds me of somebody speaking of ali the outward display of piety i'm not sure how that would apply because i you know because i think there is a kind of spiritual narcissism without diagnosing anyone but just in the sense of thinking that you're the your way of understanding things and your beliefs are the only possible ones and having to control everyone else into believing what you believe and agreeing with what you believe which again I think comes from an insecurity about what you believe lack of confidence Mm -hmm. yeah I think uh even though the position in this situation was kind of anti-spirituality it was also a system of spiritual belief to say that no there cannot be you know this this idea of law of attraction for example does not exist and there cannot be anyone who thinks otherwise that's not okay 
mm-hmm. <laughs> that just that concept seems like spiritual narcissism to me. Yeah, or believing that uh, the grounded spiritual people or the people that agree with her and anyone that doesn't agree with her automatically believes in law of attraction. <laughs> yeah, that was weird. Mm-hmm. That was a really weird switch. The next one is grandiose narcissism. And that's a subtype of NPD characterized by an exaggerated sense of self-importance, a preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited success and power and brilliance and beauty or idyllic love, and a belief in one's exceptional abilities or greatness. So they just think that they're the shit all the time, 24-7. People with this like grandiose narcissism, they seek attention and admiration from external sources they seek it from other people and can exploit and manipulate people to achieve their goals or maintain their self-image they can also have a sense of entitlement and feel that rules or laws don't apply to them and it's apparently one of the most common forms of narcissism and is often associated with high levels of extroversion and low levels of empathy i don't think i can can think of anyone that fits into that category that i know so that's interesting it's the most common one I would say like Andrew Tate okay, <laughs> would okay. fit into this one, thinking that the rules don't apply to them and that they're just so great and so brilliant in every way just for existing. Yeah, but it's so hard to know when you when you look at celebrities from the outside. You can't necessarily know from the outside looking in what the motivations are of people because I think we know this in kind of a micro way as TikTok micro influencers, but it, it's all some kind of performance. So it is hard to tell where people are coming from with that and like what are their real motivations for being there is it some kind of sense of grandiosity and sense of entitlement to being famous or being or having that attention or is there some other kind of sense of purpose to what people are doing are they doing it because they believe in their art are they doing it because i mean i'm here because i think i have important stuff to to share that might make the world better mm-hmm. i say entertain specifically because he displays this with his podcast stuff and his old TikTok content. Uh, this entitlement to entitlement to women, the entitlement to exploit and manipulate women to achieve his goal of just having a lot of women and making money off of women. I remember him in an interview talking about how he'll have like a dozen girlfriends at a time. And with these girlfriends, he'll record sexual acts with them convince them to get on OnlyFans he'll use another girlfriend to convince the new girlfriend to get on OnlyFans and set it up for her lie about the earnings lie about what she made and what she's entitled to lie about the taxes and give her a fraction of what she earned and keep the rest because he thinks all women are stupid that's horrible that's a grandiose narcissist to me yeah has he been me too'd can we me too him I think he's in prison in Romania okay, for sex trafficking. So. Love that for him. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's sounds done. Good. good. I knew something. I heard something about that, but good. Good for him. That sounds. <laughs> I'm I'm like a prison abolitionist. And then I sometimes make exceptions in my mind. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. And then the last one is really terrible. Oh, no. It's been an emotional roller coaster on this list. Mm-hmm. We started real low and then kind of got lighter, and now we're, we're right back down to the bottom of the barrel again. Um, sexual narcissist. Yeah. We don't like it. No, we don't already. This is the type of NPD that has to do with 
people that have an excessive preoccupation with sexual fantasies and exploits and a need for constant sexual validation and attention and a lack of concern of the needs and feelings of their sexual partners. Uh, but someone that exhibits a, a sense of entitlement and a belief that their sexual needs and desires are more important than those of anyone else. And they can engage in sexual behaviors that are exploitative, coercive, or non-consensual, and can be prone to infidelity and a lack of emotional intimacy in their relationships. They can cause a significant amount of distress and harm, of course, to themselves and to their partners. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I feel like it's like this vying for power and control, and it really is a shame. It should be like a sharing of an experience, and I think we just often completely get that wrong. (laughs) And that's just uh, like to the extreme. I think patriarchy definitely contributes to everyone kind of getting that wrong and not looking at it as a shared experience, but looking at it as a a power move. It's a power play. And when you're thinking of it in terms of power, you inherently have to use someone to gain that power. So if you're using someone, of course, it's not a shared experience. It's just an object and you have... You have someone you're tra- you have someone you're trying to go, and yeah. you have to use this body to get there. And yeah. often, women were the the thing you use to get the power you're after, and then we're discarded afterwards. Yeah, I think it's like a perversion and a fetishization of what should be a really beautiful thing. I think eroticism is divinely powerful. <laughs> divinely powerful. Something gets unlocked when you can be just truly vulnerable and intimate with another human being in that way. And so much of what sex has become because of our society, I think, is a perversion and a fetishization of what the, of what the experience of sex should be. I mean, even the idea that it's just penetration, just invasion, in, instead of a whole mm-hmm. slew of other acts and experiences all together yeah yeah i think out of all the subtypes to steer clear of who the sexual one i would i would go nowhere near nowhere near that person at all they just they all seem pretty unsafe but the last one sounds like the most unsafe to me well because if you're interacting with them in the context of sex then you're being very vulnerable with somebody that's very unsafe to be vulnerable with i would say unless you're also using them in some way i guess but uh i wanted to also bring up that it seems like fantasy is like a through line of the whole conversation which i guess just ties into that i mean I think fantasy, I think that that also, when going back to what I was talking about at the beginning with the West seeing the Orient or the East as a reflection of itself and that having to do with our narcissism as a culture, I think fantasy gets associated with the Orient and the East because it's that kind of, because of that reflective relationship also. And so in fantasy, we see ourselves and we reflect ourselves and kind of process our own ways of understanding ourselves through, I guess, like metaphor almost. Mm-hmm. And, but it's externalized and turned into object. So, and I, and it sounds mm-hmm. like, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this uh, dangerous thinking, I think, ties into 
where the line between reality and fantasy falls. And then there's a different line where, or like, what is reality, I guess, is a related question because uh, who gets to determine what counts as fantasy and what counts as reality, especially in my understanding, reality is collectively generated. So we all con- we all decide together what reality is by our collective agreement. And so fantasy, what is fantasy? That's very subjective but it can be very dangerous to live in a world of fantasy. I think it's a lack of groundedness. And I think that can go into what, what Ali, for example, was trying to talk about when it came to spiritual psychosis, or we could even say spiritual narcissism seems to similarly tie in. Right. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. Like it's very difficult to know. Am I having this thought uh, or am I having this feeling some clear audience or I've had a vision or I believe in manifestation is that fantasy? Is it fair to call it fantasy? Where's the line? I don't think there really is any objective line. This is my real feeling about how truth works and reality works. It's subjective. It's not entirely subjective in a, in a just give up trying way. It's subjective, but rooted in our experiences. But yeah, that's that concept of fantasy. I think it's easy to weaponize it against people and it can also be a dangerous thing to live in a fantasy world and and seems to tie in with a lot of these things that we've been talking about this hour. I feel like within the context of having NPD and living in a fantasy, I don't know. I don't know how much their fantasy really impacts their reality because it falls apart. Like it definitely falls apart because part of the fantasy is that this ideal way that they view themselves, they, they, the fantasy is that everyone views them that way but that's just not the reality for the people around them when they start showing that they have no empathy and they don't really care how you feel and they don't really care how their actions affect the people around them so the fantasy falls apart pretty quickly it doesn't stick it doesn't reach other people i don't know it's like do you think it's like a lack of stability of the reality like uh or i like, almost want to like say it's deep. like a delusion okay more delusion than a fantasy because when i think fantasy i think like I think of positive things when i think of fantasy when i think of a narcissistic fantasy i think delusion okay. because they have this belief that is not reality and they truly think everyone around them believes it too mm. and they move through the world as if everyone believes this thing about them too and it's just not the case yeah. Well, I think fantasy can be like hoping, dreaming, imagining better worlds, better futures. Fantasy can also be escapism. So it can be either one. And so maybe that's the different uses of it that makes the difference there. Like, I think it's, I think it should be okay. I think it should be encouraged. And I think it is healthy to engage in fantasy and especially mm-hmm. in the sense of engaging in imaginative play, uh, creation. I think, you know, you can create things because you start in a place of fantasy. It's not healthy to live in delusion. No, not at all. Especially not these kinds of delusions. Yeah. Well, I'm sure I'll have to spend many more years reflecting on this before I have a complete picture, honestly, because I'm just newly, I think, kind of delving into this as a special interest 
because it wasn't something that affected me as directly before now. And now I'm fascinated, fascinated by the workings of this whole, this whole thing and seeing some of it in action, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think it's very, it's very fascinating. But the thing is knowing all these like profiles of NPD is great because you're able to recognize these things when they play out in real life. Um, You get to kind of pick out these different interactions that you'll start to remember when you read about these different subtypes of NPD. But the thing you have to remember is, again, these people don't act like this all the time. They don't want to be disliked. They don't want to be rejected. That's like the worst narcissistic injury to be rejected by people. They don't want to be disliked or hated most of the time. The ones that actually care about that. And I think more actually care about that kind of thing care than not care. But it's it's important to understand the motivation for why the, they behave that the way that they do. And it's all for attention and validation because it comes from such a deep place of insecurity. So when they want attention and validation, which is called narcissistic supply, they're not going to behave badly at first. What they're going to do is treat you really, really well. You're going to have the most magical friendship, the most magical beginning of a relationship with them because they need that attention, admiration, and, and validation and adoration uh, because it reinforces their sense of self-importance and superiority. And they require a constant flow of it to maintain this like inflated sense of self-worth. So that's what narcissistic supply is. That's what they're constantly looking for. And that validation can come in all kinds of different forms. The attention can come in any form. It can be praise, compliments, attention, status symbols, or it can be negative attention like fear or anger or jealousy. It's just, it's essential to their identity and they'll go to pretty much any lengths, some even pretty dangerous lengths to ensure that they continue to receive that narcissistic supply. And that supply can come from multiple sources at once, especially in a romantic relationship. You can pretty much guarantee that you're not their only source of narcissistic supply for dating someone like this. So the question is, how do they secure this constant flow of narcissistic supply? Uh, Well, that's the first cycle, the first phase of the cycle of narcissistic abuse. And that is the love bombing phase. What do you know about love bombing? What do I know about it? Well, I was going to say this was very important for you to bring up before we ended here because uh, it's important to recognize before it ends, I think. And uh, I have experienced it recently. And I think there's a difference between... I think that this is another point of, of conflation sometimes between maybe a narcissist and an autistic person because an autistic person... Or just a person in general, I guess, can approach a situation. No, I mean an autistic. An autistic person can often approach a, a new friendship masking and appearing kind of overly bright and attentive and interested. And it's kind of performative 
but it's because of it's it's coming again from a genuine desire to be friends, get to know someone and operate in a way that they feel comfortable with. But when you're being love bombed, that's in stark contrast to what comes next. And it's another kind of performance. And it's basically just to where the person makes you feel excessively good about yourself. Um, it makes you feel very loved and very attended to. And I think one sign of love bombing is that it can be at least in my recent experience, very surface level. So mm -hmm. there's not a lot of them actually caring about who you are underneath of anything. There's not a lot of them actually delving in. For example, maybe they'll say, hey, you know, I'm so interested in all of your art. I'm so interested in what you've done uh, with your life's work. And I'd love to dig into that sometime and really get to know you and, and what you've done with that. And then you send them a link and you're like, well, here's my, you know, whatever, here's my stuff you can look at. And then you realize like a couple of weeks later or something, they never looked at it. Mm -hmm. They never cared actually to look at it. They never mm -hmm. cared actually to get to know you. So I think that's one kind of red flag of, I might be getting love bombed here is it's like, they'll, there will be a lot of generalized kind of like, oh, you're so cool. You're the best. You're like, somebody I want to be when I grow up. You're like, uh, you're just, I, so you're like being put on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. and that's basically the precursor to next you fall down. And I think that's different from, but can appear similar to somebody that is masking out of a sense of wanting to make it a good start to a relationship, you know, or, or masking for just social survival. To not be ostracized yeah. no, or that too. That too. targeted. Love bombing is definitely, I believe, a form of masking because the mask falls the fuck off not far after this. But the you're right. The point of love bombing is to feign emotional intimacy to really quickly gain someone's trust so that they can also gain control or dominance over the over the connection in some way. It's supposed to sort of bypass the person's rational thinking and their ability to like critically evaluate the narcissist's behaviors. You sort of bypass getting to know each other. If they just shower you with all this admiration and presence, um, text calls, just being so attentive and so into you without really getting to know you it's like you said it's all very surface it's all very superficial they repeat a pattern of what works with other people it's not really tailored to you they kind of just mirror you on a very surface level so when you're romantically involved with a narcissist that's in this love bombing phase they say that you fall in love with them really quickly because they're acting like you you're falling in love with yourself at the end of the day when that relationship's over, long over, you'll realize, I don't really know anything about this person other than they have all these narcissistic traits. You'll really know nothing about them because they just act like you in the love bombing phase. They pick out little obvious traits about your mannerisms, the things you say, the things that you laugh at, the things that make you smile, and they'll just reflect those things back to you. And... You're like, oh, I I met someone that just 
finally gets me. This person's my best friend. They're just like me. They're just on my level. They're my twin flame. They're your twin flame. Soulmate. Yeah. Well, narcissists can learn that language of twin flames and fit right in there and easily convince someone that they're meant to be, you know? So it's very important to look out for, even if you think, because it's easy to be tempted into thinking like, I'm in this kind of special divine thing. And maybe so, maybe so. But be careful because there's this very dangerous and not uncommon thing that happens where people absolutely learn that language, take advantage. And maybe consider if you're someone who thinks you're in a twin flame relationship, if you're someone who knows you're a twin flame, consider that that person might not be your twin flame. They might be a narcissist who is mirroring you and making you feel. And then the love bombing phase goes away. And so I'm sure we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about breadcrumbing next. When that starts to happen, don't think to yourself, oh, this is just some situation that I'm meant to work on, work through and fix. No, it really could be the narcissist pattern of behavior and you have to Mm -hmm. watch out for it. Yeah, especially if you're romantically involved. I know I keep going back to that, but it's just it's so important for me to say is that the love bombing phase, it's so short and you'll think you're in this honeymoon phase. Honeymoon phases should last a really long time. Not two, three months, and now he's playing hot and cold and doesn't call you as much and acting completely different. And maybe if I just do that and do this, and if I just change myself, we can go back to how we were three months ago. No. If it ended that quickly and he starts acting different or she starts acting different, that was a love bombing phase and you're never going to get back to that place. It's never going to be like that again. And they get you in this this mental state after this amazing love bombing phase where you feel like you've met your absolute soulmate where you want to chase it when it's gone. It's like chasing a high. You want to go back to this flirty, sexy, texting all day, can't get enough of each other, you want to go back to that because it felt really good, but it it wasn't real. And if it ended within a couple of weeks or a couple of months of getting to know this person, it was a love bomb and it's over. It's over, over. It's never going to be that good again. I think that's really important for, I think that was really important for me to hear when I was going through what I was going through. And thank God I had you as a friend telling me that in my ear because I think I really needed to hear it. I really needed to get kind of snapped out of that and think, okay, it's done. There is no, like the longer that we stay trying to make this fixed, the longer it's just going to suck. It's absolutely the best if the second you realize you've been love bombed, even if it's still happening, but even if it just ended or what, or even if it's a year in and you've been breadcrumbed for a year now, the second you realize that it was love bombing, That's the best second to leave. Get out. Mm -hmm. Leave and never touch it again. That's when the least damage is done. Yeah. Any extra time is more time to hurt you. Just just be done. It's okay. Forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. Be done. It's really okay. Because when I tell you it never gets good again with a narcissist, the love bombing phase is the best time you will ever spend with a narcissist. And when it's over, it's it's so over. It's so long gone. And it ends pretty abruptly. It's not like a, a slow drip and 
you're growing apart. You don't, you won't even know each other well enough to grow apart. Yeah. It feels like a, it feels like a gut punch and it feels confusing. If you mm-hmm. find yourself feeling confused and disempowered, if you find yourself saying, I'm confused, and that think, that's a sign, that's a red flag, confused and disempowered. If you ever feel like that, and especially if somebody seems happy, gleefully, mm-hmm. that you feel that way, that is not a good, that's not a safe place for you to be. I would also add confused, disempowered, and triggered to chase if you feel triggered to pursue them to find out what's going on what's wrong why is everything so different are you mad at me did i do something and you're not really getting an answer and nothing's really changing run the other direction and don't look back oh my god because what's coming after that or what has happened i should say is the devaluation phase love bombing does not last very long because it takes a lot of energy for them to maintain it's not sustainable for them to love bomb for very long and you'll notice that abrupt change happen when you start to feel safe with them when you start to trust them that's when the love bombing ends because they know okay i did the thing i have them where i want them they're likely not going anywhere So now they don't matter as much because I don't have to work as hard to keep them or to get them to love me, which is really sick and sad that as soon as you love them, that's the minute you get devalued. So the devaluation phase, that's the next phase in the cycle of abuse. And it's when they start to criticize you. You'll notice in conversation with them, they'll throw in little jabs or um, they'll bring up things from weeks or months prior that they were upset about, but they'll kind of mention it casually. And you'll be kind of confused, like, oh, you were, you were mad at me then? Or you were, ups- you were upset by this thing that I said back then? Or, oh, just really random criticize- criticisms of you. Um, and it's meant to kind of break down your self-esteem and break down your self-worth to make you more emotionally dependent on them for validation and affirmation. So the love bombing phase was where they're, sh- they're showing you a lot of attention to get you where they want you. The devaluation phase is to break you down so you come to them. You come to them, which is like attention in a different way. They're not tending to you anymore. Now they have you in a place where your sights are set on them all the time. You're giving them attention constantly. You're coming to them for validation, to feel better, to 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 question or to not to question them, but to seek approval from them. That's where they want you. They want you dependent on them for approval. Yeah, that makes complete sense. And I think, yeah, it makes it makes sense to want closure and to want to chase them for closure. But you have to, I think one of the best things a therapist ever told me was sometimes you have to grieve the loss of a relationship. You have to just mm-hmm. act like, well, it's dead and mourn it like a per- like someone you loved died and that's okay and then that grief takes as long as it takes but you got to grieve it that's your closure because you're not going to get it from that external person you got to find it in yourself so that's that's something that has helped me but it can be very shocking mm-hmm. to realize that that's you know that's been happening because it's such a sudden reversal it's very sudden uh, especially in like your recent experience in that friendship 
But in a relationship with a narcissist, your entire, like the bulk of your relationship is spent in the devaluation phase. That can last years. Like in my last relationship, I would say the love bombing phase lasts for about like two, three months. And the next few years was spent in the devaluation phase. The criticism, the emotional withdrawal. And then when you're romantically involved, that also includes like a withdrawal of physical intimacy and affection you find yourself asking them you know can we be close again can we be intimate is there something wrong with me are you not attracted to me anymore can I do something differently should I lose weight do I need to dress differently you just start to spiral in this insecurity and that's that's exactly where they want you and they withdraw from you emotionally and physically because they're getting supply usually from somewhere else this is where you're going to experience gaslighting the most is in the devaluation phase because they don't want it they don't want you to recognize that you're being devalued so they'll make you feel crazy and like you're just overreacting or you're just too sensitive or you're you're abusing them by accusing them of pulling away from you or whatever they blame shift they give you the silent treatment this is where most of the abuse happens is when they don't value you anymore this is where you also experience Darvo, <laughs> mm-hmm. usually in the devaluation phase. You know a little about Darvo. I do. <sighs> I mean, yeah, this entire experience is a case study, basically. Basically, yeah. Uh, it's, it is really devastating because people with NPD are really lovable. They get you with that love bombing phase. And they treat you like some they treat you like you're their favorite person. Yeah. And then when that abruptly stops, you wonder why that's happening and your feelings are so deeply hurt and you want to address those feelings and you think, well, if you love me, like they love me, right? So let's of course they don't want me to hurt. Of course they'd be willing to address these things with me. Nope. <laughs> when you oh, do yeah. address those things with them, they're just yeah. gonna tell you you are dramatic your feelings and your needs are the problem you hurt your own feelings you're the reason why i treat you the way that i do so if you stop acting like that i could be better (laughs) they just they turn it all on you yeah it's all about emotional manipulation Mm -hmm. so i mentioned darvo and darvo is a way of blame shifting it's really emotionally manipulative it stands for deny attack reverse victim and offender and it's a psychological defense mechanism that people with NBD, NPD and also just abusers will use to deny that they've done anything wrong to you and then attack you by blaming you and making accusations. And then they'll kind of flip the script and reverse the role. So they become the victim of you. And it's a crazy making cycle. And if you're in a relationship with someone with NPD, you spend a lot of time in this Darvo cycle You'll get your feelings hurt. You'll want to talk about it with them. And at the end of the conversation, you're apologizing to them. That's pretty much how it goes with them. So if that happens enough, you'll probably start to withdraw after a while because pursuing them and trying to have these conversations to to get to a place of resolution with them, you'll start to realize this isn't really going anywhere. It's always my fault. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to pull away or maybe think about getting getting out of this relationship or ending this friendship and they absolutely notice when you pull your energy away from them even a little bit. Even the tiniest bit. You don't text back right away or 
you're not chasing them. You're not asking them what's wrong and why is our friendship the way that it is. As soon as you stop doing that, that's when you get breadcrumbed. You mentioned breadcrumbing earlier. It's really gross what breadcrumbing is. And yeah. it's it's a pattern of behavior where the narcissist will send really intermittent, insincere, surfacey signals of being interested in you again or wanting to be affectionate toward you again to keep you hooked so they can string you along. There's no depth to it. It it doesn't mean that they want to resolve anything. They just feel you pulling away and they're not ready for you to actually go anywhere. So they breadcrumb you. Yeah, it's like a weird zombie version of your original. It's like in zombie movies where somebody's spouse dies and then they just like keep them chained up in the basement in the hope of... <laughs> Of like reanimating them into a real, into a person and not a zombie anymore, but then they get eaten in the end. Like it's just not safe. It's just not dead. Yeah, honestly. An an undead love bombing face is pretty (laughs) much what it is. That's what I think. But yeah, it's, um, it's creepy because it's, it is, it's like you want it to be that original thing. You, you fantasize that it's that original thing and you, and it, it's just, it's really hard to come to terms with, especially because you can forgive yourself for for buying into some of what they were selling you in the beginning. Because who mm-hmm. would, who doesn't want to feel special? Who doesn't want to feel loved? That's not anything wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, once you find yourself in that, in that state of just confusion where every, the end of every single conversation leads to, oh, wow, I guess I was wrong. Because mm-hmm. I centered myself too much, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that is time to get out. That's time to leave because you, you are special. You are important and you don't need this person to tell you that. So that's just important to remember too. Yeah. When you notice that you're not getting back what you're putting in. Like if you find yourself in constant distress about the state of your friendship or relationship with this person and they're not at all at that same level of distressed or worried or even communicating with you, you want to have this conversation and they're like, oh, we can talk about it later. We'll talk about it right now. Like putting things off when you're clearly in pain and they could make it so much better if they would just acknowledge you, talk to you and they just can't do it because it just is not important enough to them Mm, you're being devalued and if you realize that and say you know what maybe I don't need this person maybe I'm just gonna lean into self-care and loving myself more and seeing my worth without this person in my life that's when they're gonna throw a little breadcrumb your way and the more you recognize your worth the more you're gonna see that breadcrumb for exactly what it is which is too little too late always too little too late with them yeah, and they'll go to some pretty manipulative lengths sometimes to keep you in that cycle, keep you keep you breadcrumbed. They'll they'll play some tricks. So it just takes a lot of just self knowledge, knowledge of who the hell you are, mm. who the hell mm-hmm. you are. You know who you are. Don't let you know other people do not tell you that. So when when people are starting to make you feel confused about who the hell you are, get out of there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another thing with the breadcrumbing phase, whether it's a platonic friendship or a romantic relationship, if they're breadcrumbing you, it's because they're love bombing someone else. 
they can't love bomb more than one person at a time. So when they've pulled their energy so far back from you, where you're being breadcrumbed, guaranteed they're pouring all of themselves into a whole new narcissistic supply to secure them. Mm. Um, but there is a time where the breadcrumbing does end, and that is the discard phase. And the discard is when you are ghosted. There is no breadcrumbing. There is like it's they just disappear on you. You never hear from them again. And uh, they just cut you off without any explanation at all. And if you're really unlucky, that discard will also result in a smear campaign where they are talking to other people about their version of why they had to just cut you off that way because they want to discredit you and protect their own image. They want to make sure that anyone that you talk to about them already has their story in their mind and you look crazy. They want to make sure you look absolutely nuts to anyone that knows you and loves you. They want to make sure anyone that knows you and loves you knows them and loves them more. Yeah. And we definitely experienced a lot of that. And it's interesting too that discard is what I've observed. It's used as it's it's language that narcissists pick up on and use in order to justify why they have a trail of no friends. So mm-hmm. sometimes when you first meet one of these people and they're in this love bombing phase and they're describing some past relationship and they're like, oh yeah, that person just discarded me, like a not like they were the narcissist, right? And then mm-hmm. later on, you're like, oh, no, no, everybody in your life didn't just discard you, poor you. Actually, mm-hmm. you just use that language to disguise the fact that you had that red flag situation with uh, you can't keep friends, you know, so that's interesting because it's like uh, that discarding. If somebody tells you that person discarded me, it's interesting to think about about that, especially as just like it's not a necessarily a red flag. Maybe somebody's just aware of the situation they were in and they're really a victim, but it yeah. can, in combination with other things, it could be a red flag early on, especially if somebody's just being like very, very sweet to you. And they're like, Oh yes, but all of my friends, everyone I've ever known has been a narcissist who discarded me. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a red flag. That's definitely a red flag. I agree with that. Um, there's another phase after the discard. Um, and this, ooh, this is bad. <laughs> it happens in, romantic intimate relationships with narcissists but it's it what it's what comes after the discard which is the hoovering phase let me say hoover because it's like like the vacuum you get sucked back into the reality and it's kind of like breadcrumbing but it's a step up but not quite love bombing again it's them wanting to kind of take your temperature Mm. and see if you'll engage with them again it's not a sign of they've changed and they recognize the the wrong way that they treated you. They don't want to make up. It's like the love bombing phase with the, with the hint of resentment behind it. Like they'll be sweet and nice, but they're going to let you know that everything was still your fault and you hurt them so bad. (laughs) And yeah, they just need your attention, but they resent you really bad. Uh, usually this happens when the new love bombing phase falls apart when the new narcissistic supply falls off the pedestal and they start devaluing them and they haven't found someone else new they'll kind of shuffle through the their rolodex of discarded people 
and initiate a hoovering phase with past targets. Wow. But I guess you could hopefully be resistant to a hoovering phase if you know what you're looking for and just not engage would basically be the way to get out of that. Basically, if someone ghosts you, done. Dead to me. You you can't hoover me back after (laughs) you ghosted me. (laughs) Like, no. Yeah, that's a good point. Like it's one thing to take a step back, like, hey, we need a cooling off period. Let's take a break. Like I'm communicating to you that I need to pull away from you. Maybe we can revisit this in the future. Like even something as simple as that in a text message. And then you text me a year later, I'll probably respond. Mm -hmm. But if you ghost me and then text me six months later, consider me dead. Like, is it No, it's over. No, I, <laughs> I do think that like, that's a good way of setting a boundary. If you feel like you can't engage in a conversation with somebody or even in a friendship for a period of time, or even for an indefinite period of time, I think it's totally reasonable and within anybody's rights to say to another person, Hey, I need to step away. I need my space. I can't engage anymore. And maybe not even give a time frame, but just communicate that much. And maybe mm-hmm. give a time frame. maybe say, I can't talk to you till tomorrow. I really can't talk until next week. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's a good way to set a boundary when you realize you need to step away. But yeah, to to just not communicate at all what's happening and no longer respond and block, that's avoidant. And yeah, I don't think I would, I actually can think of one relationship I had, a romantic relationship where I did that with somebody and it was just not healthy, went on for a couple of years and I don't think that person was an, was a narcissist, but I think, again, it was like somebody maybe with some narcissistic behaviors, and we definitely had this unhealthy cycle between us. And I think that kind of ghosting and then hoovering thing, I only really bought into because I was very attracted to the person and I wanted so badly for it to work. And mm-hmm. I was much younger and much less secure in myself. So I think one of the biggest things is just to be confident that you really don't need this person you really don't need their drama. You can always find somebody that will actually value you. And in a different way than that, you don't have to, you don't have to look there for your attention and your validation. And that's harder to understand. I think when you're younger, Mm -hmm. but I think, uh, it's true. (laughs) And also when you miss them and they finally text you after ghosting you for however long, it's hard to to see that that hoovering isn't really a genuine attempt to heal or fix anything there there's probably no change there's definitely no change that's that's happened in that time they just they miss having access to your attention they don't even really miss you they just miss having access to you access that they cut off themselves because they were busy with someone else it reminds me of some of those like videos and tarot readings and stuff and twin flame readings where they're like, Oh, like, or even just use this sound and he'll call you. He needs me. He needs me. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like, that's, that could be a big red flag. If he goes mm-hmm. you and now he calls you think about that. Not yeah. necessarily, but it could be, you should think about it. And if you're not careful and you give into that hoovering phase, you end right back up at the devaluing phase, breadcrumbing, discard, hoover. That's why it's a cycle. Because narcissists, especially if you're intimately intimately involved, they never actually let you go. You're always in 
the Rolodex. Always. They will, that's why they say go no contact with them because they'll never not contact you. They'll ghost you for a couple months, maybe even a couple years, but they never forget you and they never actually leave you alone. So you have to be the one to cut off the supply for good. Because they're just going to keep coming back because you'll, if you keep letting them, they'll keep trying. And it creates a trauma bond where there's like a weird like dopamine reward when you crave them and you don't get what you want. And then they give you a breadcrumb and you're so excited for this little crumb of attention and affection that they're giving you. You settle for that and then they drop you and then they... You're having so much fun and spending so much time with this new person, this new friend or this new girlfriend or boyfriend. And you see that because they want to make sure you see it. It's traumatizing. It, it messes with your head. And that cycle is what causes CPTSD in relationships with people with NPD where you experience narcissistic abuse. That's where CPTSD can start to set into your brain because it's long-term trauma trauma it's a slow drip of trauma over however long you stay with them and a lot of times you don't even recognize that you're being abused or that you have cptsd until you finally do go non no contact and the relationship is over and you can settle into not being in survival mode anymore and then you get on tiktok you get on narc talk and then you learn all about how your relationship was really abusive it's hard to even recognize in the moment that you're being abused in that way. It's hard to recognize if you've never heard of this pattern before. And again, it just falls right in line with the twin flame pattern. Mm -hmm. And I do, I really do think there's like a positive way to take twin flames, but absolutely these things can be red flags. And uh, it is, it is quite jarring to get past an experience that's traumatic over a period of time and look back on it and realize, wow, that was hella abusive. I yeah. didn't even know. I thought I was in love. That is really heartbreaking. And it's okay to feel grief. It's okay to grieve it. But sometimes that's really important work if you want to move on and you want to move on to healthier things. Yeah. And you really can only grieve it when you choose to go no contact and you really shut that door and padlock it. Mm -hmm. You can't let them back in. I know there's situations where, let's say you married a narcissist, you had a bunch of kids with them, and then you leave, and now you're in a co-parenting situation, so you can't cut them out of your lives. That's a whole other thing. And there's a way to move through that if you have to interact with them for the rest of your kids' lives. Like, that's another thing. But if you are lucky enough to not have children with a narcissist, you don't own a home with a narcissist, you don't own a business with a narcissist, absolutely go no contact as soon as you recognize who they are and what they've done to you as soon as you recognize i'm being devalued mm, i'm with someone that doesn't love me doesn't know me doesn't care about me stringing me along done that's when you start to heal yeah. you can't be with them anymore if you're ever going to heal yeah and they might they might play tricks to try to make it hard for you to step away but that's definitely the way to move on and it really is just like the sooner you get that the sooner you do it the better mm -hmm. that's that's the thing so good i'm glad we talked about that yeah that's that's all i got <laughs> i know well good i mean this was extensive but when you said you wanted to do this episode 
I knew immediately there was going to be a ton to talk about. And I think <laughs> it's all so important and really just gives an important framework to like everything that went on in this situation. So I'm glad we did it. Good. Good for us. Good for us. Yay. And <laughs> all the notes I'll make sure to put in the show notes so it's available for everyone that listens. Good. Thank you for listening. Find additional content at doxtthepodcast.com.